Well, good morning, church. Good to see y'all. Yesterday was a fun day for me. I got to go out with uh, the security team, and uh, we practiced our job. I'll let you figure out what that means. I just want you to know you're in good hands. While we're here this morning, a number of people have asked about Cindy. She had her treatments this week. She uh, Last night she got home from uh, the from MD Anderson visit. She got really sick. She's not here this morning. Um, so some so many of you have been gracious enough to offer to pray for her. The big some have asked how can we pray. The biggest thing is pray she doesn't get a fever because with her treatment, fever would be uh, quite uh, quite a dangerous thing. So uh, please do that. I just checked. I was I was looking at my phone during worship. Don't hate on me because I was wanting just to just to double check to see how she's doing and. Uh, so far, so good. So thank you uh, for praying for all of that. Randy's gone. Uh, he's been gone for a few days. Man, it's been so quiet in the office. <sighs> you know, there are some staff that, you know, you hate to see them go on vacation. There are some staff that when they go, you're like, you know, they deserve it. But don't tell Randy I said all that, all right? This morning, we're continuing our series entitled, I Choose. We all have choices. You made choices this morning. One of the biggest choices you made today was, am I going to lie in bed or am I going to go to church? Let me just tell you, you made a good choice. A lot of people in Vero right now, not so good, but you made a good choice. Why is that? That's because you are choosing to invest not only in your eternal destiny, but you're choosing to invest in the way you live your life. You've made a commitment that I want to be better than I am, that I want to do something that is bigger than, than, than anything else I'm doing in my life, and I just, I just need to be in church. I'm glad you chose to go to church. I'm really glad you chose to go to Pathway Church, and I hope you're also choosing to invite some others to, to come along with you over the course of our time together. Today, we're going to continue in this series, I Choose. In week one, we talked about extraordinary living, and what that means is how we relentlessly pursue calling with spiritual authority. Hopefully, you're doing that. I've had a number of conversations with many of you who, ha who have been are reinvestigating, what does it look like for God to call me into some kind of particular area of ministry? Last week, we talked about how purpose fulfills our lives in a way that popularity never can. Popularity feels good in the moment, but purpose is what carries us across the finish line. And today, we're going to talk about generosity. In fact, we're going to call generosity principled, open-handed living, but let's get started. Timothy Keller, who is a, a, a pastor, was a pastor in New York City, now running a church planning organization. He was doing a seven-part series on the seven deadly sins. Well, his wife said to him, I'll bet you when, on the week that you deal with greed, that will be the lowest attended week of all of your sessions. 
Timothy Keller says that she was right. He said people packed it out for lust and wrath and even pride. But very few people came on the day that he spoke on the topic of greed. Now I have to be honest with you. I've been in ministry about 30 years, and people have come to me for all kinds of counseling situations. They have come to me to talk about adultery or lust, problems with their teenagers, problems with their wives, even problems with their mother-in-laws. I got a special session for that one. And I, I don't want to shock you or anything, but I even had a couple people over the course of my ministry who have come to me to get counseling about the eternal destiny of their favorite dog. Have any of you ever owned a dog? I've owned three dogs. Two of them were saved. I know one of them wasn't. <laughs> but the one thing I never, I don't remember anyone ever in my entire ministry ever coming up to me and saying, Pastor, I spend way too much money on myself. Please help me. Never. I've never had somebody come to me and say, Well, Pastor, I just have too much money and I don't know how to give it away. Zogby conducted a very large benchmark poll in which respondents identified greed and materialism as the most urgent problem in American culture. Another poll was done in which it conducted by Vanity Fair, which concluded and discovered that 78% of Americans disagreed with the famous Gordon Gecko statement that was, greed is good. The reality is we recognize that greed is a problem. The Economist magazine also asked the question, what is the deadliest sin? And their readers ranked greed as number one. When the BBC did their poll, here's what they asked. They said, of the seven deadly sins, which are, remember, anger and envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and, and sloth, of, the, of all the deadly sins that you personally have the most trouble with, greed was last. We recognize that greed is a problem with everybody else, but it's not a problem with me. I have a confession for you this morning. It's a true confession. The other day I went to Subway to, 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 uh, to get a salad at Subway. I know I don't look like it, but yeah, I do eat salads. Went to Subway to get this salad and there was nobody in there to speak of. And this lady was super nice. I mean, she, she was serving me. She, she, I asked for just a little bit of bacon in my salad and she, instead of putting it in two strips, she put in four strips. I'm going back to that Subway again. I mean, she, she just made it. She was talking. She was funny. We were having a good time. I got to the end, and I get to the very end, and there's this, this, this um, that clear stuff. What's it called? The plexiglass. There's a plexiglass box, and it had tips on the outside. My meal was $6.78, and I have a confession to you. I'm sitting there looking at that box, and I'm thinking, should I give a tip? Should I give a tip? And in my mind, I mean, I'm just telling you, this has happened. I know none of you have ever done this. And in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, how much should I, how much should I, if I give her a tip, how much should I give her? I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And finally, it was like the Lord said to me, quit being Ebenezer Scrooge. Give the woman a tip. So I pulled out a dollar, and I put a dollar in the jar. Can you believe that? I was struggling for 
15 or 20 seconds internally thinking about, can I give away a dollar as a tip? Come on, Tim, you're better than that. Well, the, de- the, uh, the dictionary defines greed as the excessive desire for money or possessions. But here's the deal. Greed is not just caring about money and possessions, but it's caring too much about money and possessions. However, I have to admit to you, I don't find this definition especially helpful. For example, when am I caring too much? What is excessive? When am I, when am I being thrifty? And when, am I, when can I be accused of, of being guilty? It's kind of tough. It's a hard line to discern sometimes. Maybe, maybe we can assess it this way. You remember Jeff Foxworthy and you know, his series of statements, you might be a redneck if. I live some of those. Like, like when Jeff Foxworthy, Foxworthy says, you might be a redneck if all the bowls in your kitchen have Cool Whip written on the side. Or, or down in Texas, uh, you might be a redneck if someone asks you for identification and you show them your belt buckle. So here's the deal. You might have a greed problem if your son says that he needs new shoes because the duct tape holding them together is falling off and you say to him, suck it up, son, when I was your age. You might have a greed problem if, if you ask your financial counselor how you can get your money into heaven and, and you're serious. You might have a greed problem if you feel guilty every time you spend 99 cents for a 98-cent cup of coffee. Or you might be greedy, have a greed problem if someone needs food and you roll down the window as you're driving by and you say, get a job. You might have a greed problem if the mere mention of money causes you to eat Rolaids like it's candy. You see my point? There's no precise definition of when you've, when you've moved over that imaginary boundary from being thrifty to being greedy. But greed is a ser- serious matter, it really is. Do you know psychologists tell us that people who get locked into certain greed patterns with money actually rewire their brains in a way that is similar to someone who is taking drugs, to someone who has an addiction. That's how serious it can be. And here's the deal, is, is this problem is not just about the one percenters. This problem is also true of those who go shop at the dollar store. It's not the amount of money which determines if we're greedy or not greedy. It's how we view money and how we let money control or empower our lives. Now, the Bible has some things to say about this. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 25, it says, The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. What does it mean, the greedy stir up conflict? Here's what it means. is when we we don't get what we need, we do what we need to do to get it. And usually that stirs up some kind of problem or trouble in our lives. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus said, it's not about what you have. But watch out, Jesus said, because greed's there. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Can we just get that little bit more? I, I make this much, and then I make this much, and then when is it enough? When is enough enough? You've heard that. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You see, the Bible tells us clearly, and you know this, the Bible tells us that we should not be, be greedy people seeking after money and, and being driven by the love of money. And the antidote, we think, to greed is this idea of generosity. And while generosity can be the antidote, it sometimes has its difficulties as well. When am I being generous? Now, the biblical text that we read this morning is from 1 Timothy. Just going to hit it real quickly, just say a couple of things about it. But if you remember the text, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge, charge them not to be haughty or, or proud, nor to set their hope on un, the uncertainty of riches. Did anyone have any money invested in 2008? We, you know, the uncertainty of riches. But let us trust on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God provides... It says the, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is, now notice that last phrase, what is truly life. Truly life. Truly life. In other words, what, what the text is implying is that when we're in our search for for, for wealth and riches and possessions and all of those things. We're not living the true life. The true life is when we take what we have and we measure it out to those around us. That, that wealth imposes a heavy responsibility on those who possess it. Sharing means that we share our hearts as well as our resources. Now, I know that some of us here today are saying, I'm off the hook. Because I am not wealthy. So who defines wealth? I told you last week about my trip to India. Did you know that in India, you couldn't live... When I was there, they said, you could, for a couple, 300 bucks a month, you can, live, you can buy a house in India... And you could have servants attending your house. I looked at my retirement account and said, I guess I'm going to have to move to India. What is wealthy? Is wealthy making $25,000 a year? Well, if you made 10 and now you make 25, that, that seems kind of wealthy, right? But what happens when you get to 25? Now it's, you need to make 50, right? When you make 50, well, now you got to make hundred, and you see how this, this, this game goes on, and, and you, you, you have one kid, and you think, well, now i got to make more. You have two kids, you got to make even more than that. They become teenagers. You don't have enough money. Just forget college. That's what my dad said. He said, son, I don't have enough money. I left when I was 18. He said, you're on your own. And he meant it, and I was. Learned the value of money. You see, we, we, get, we sometimes excuse ourselves because the word wealth seems to imply that since I don't have enough, whatever that is, then I don't have to be generous. But that's not what the Bible is all about. 
The Bible is, is all about us being generous with all we have, no matter how much we have. In fact, let me, let me say it to you this way. There's, it, there's just a two statements that I want you to grab this morning and walk away with them if you can. The first statement is this. Generosity is the sign of a new soul. Generosity is the sign of a new soul. Now, you remember the story in the, in the scriptures about Zacchaeus? You know, when you get famous, they write songs about you. He's got a cute little song, and we could sing it together, but we won't take the time to do that this morning. But here was Zacchaeus, who the Bible tells us was a wee little man. But you should know something about this wee little man. He was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. He'd be walking down the street. Hey, hey, you over there. I need a little more money. Give me your money. And his henchmen would... You didn't have any money, he'd say, Hey, that bottle, I'll take your bottle from your baby. That's who that's who Zacchaeus was. He was he was this guy who was filthy rich. Do you know the story? He met Jesus. He met Jesus in such a way that everything changed for him. In fact, the Bible tells us that, that not only did he pay back those whom he had wronged, which in itself shows character and a change, but he paid them back fourfold. In fact, when you look at the, the Old Testament idea of restitution, you see that he went beyond, he went beyond what the law required. He could have been off with, with a different amount, but he went above that because Jesus had so changed his heart. And here's what we need to understand is that, that generosity is a sign of a new soul. And here's what we need to get is the way we handle our wealth, the way you handle your wealth points to the way you probably handle your soul. So as Christians, what does it look like to live a generous life? So let me just quickly give you a few scriptures. What does it look like? 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus gave down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We're willing because Jesus gave his life. He generously came from heaven. He came to earth and he died on a cross for us because Jesus did that. Then love has, and his love has so infused our hearts that our lives should change too. Sometimes it might mean giving your life literally for someone else. In American culture, it hardly means that to us. You're not likely going to be be put in prison or jail for your faith in America. At least not yet. But what does it mean? It means that when we give our lives for someone else, that we are willing to diminish ourselves for the gain of another. The second thing it looks like is giving to the poor. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That word pity doesn't just mean, oh, I feel bad. That word pity actually means action. It says, dear, friend, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Given to the poor. 
There's a lot of ways to do that. I don't need to provide illustrations, but you need to know this. We can't really say that we love God if we're not giving to the poor. That's just it. That's just the way it is. Just one quick little story. I, uh, uh, I struggled with that issue. Because I, uh, I grew up in a home, I kind of mentioned this, my, my dad was a hard worker. I mean, he would, he would just work anyone under the table. He never quit. That's one of the things that he passed on to me. I think I'm a pretty hard worker, and I, I just do what it takes. If, my, if I needed two jobs to care for my family, I got two jobs. If I needed three jobs, I got three jobs. There's times I've worked four jobs just to make ends meet because that's what I did for my family because we, we worked hard. So there's this, ten, there's, this, there's this, I hate to say this, I hate to say this, but there's this pharisaical tendency in me that when people won't work, it just, it just does something to me. I, you know, one of, my, one of my favorite Bible verses that I use all the time is, is found back in the epistles, and it says, if you, won't, if you don't work, you don't eat. I had to tell that to my son on several occasions. But for, for me, it, sometimes it's been a problem because I went through this phase in my life where when someone would come up for, and ask me for money, here's what I would say. I would say, I, be, I bet they're going to take this money and go drink it. I'm not going to enable their, their addiction and their habit. They're going to go buy drugs. With, that's what they're going to do. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna go spend it on you know, all kinds of stuff. You get the idea. So I, I didn't want to give anybody anything. And then I began working with a young man who was homeless. He came from a good family, but through a series of choices that he made, he was literally, literally homeless. As I got to know him, he was a good kid. He made bad choices. He had some other problems in his life. And I'm telling you, now when I go someplace and I see someone begging for, you know, asking for money, will work for food or all that kind of stuff, my, my heart's different. I almost always give something. Are they going to go buy alcohol with it? Yeah, maybe. But you know they have an addiction problem. They're going to do it. And, and I decided for me, this is just for me, I decided I, I, I can't judge their heart. I don't know what's going on in their lives or maybe circumstances. They, they, they may have such grief in their life that, that they cannot hold a job. They can't do those things. I just finally said, I, I'm going to open my hands and let them take and trust that God will provide. Sharing with others from Hebrews 13, 16 says this, and do not forget to do good and to share with others for such sacrifices, uh, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. If, you, if we had time this morning to read that whole passage of Scripture, it's in the last chapter of, of Hebrews. There's a, it's a conversation that the writer of Hebrews is having with leaders, and part of that conversation is reminding the leaders about how, how Jesus was our sacrifice and that we are to worship Him, that He is a part of our praise and worship. And then he slips this verse into the middle of the worship context, and he says, don't forget to do good and to share with others for such sacrifices, worship sacrifices is what he's referring to is pleasing to God. And so the application that we need to hear this morning is true worship is not just lifting up holy hands in a worship service, but true worship is extending holy hands in service to others. We can't do this unless we're willing to do this. And if we don't do this, God's not going to accept this because that's the way God works. He gave, and so we should give. One more here real quickly. 
It's in Luke chapter 21, verse 1. I'm not going to read the, the, the scripture because we read it this morning, but, but you know, as this woman comes up and, and she drops into the offering box two small copper coins. Jesus tells her, look at the gift that she gave. This is how we can't know the, the, we don't know what wealth and generosity looks like or even greed and poverty sometimes because of the definitions. She puts in two small coins and, and I can imagine the disciples thinking, two, two coins, well, that's not going to do anything. Those two small coins are not going to help the, they're not going to help Jesus' movement. That's not going to do us any good. But Jesus looks at her and he commends her because he knows the story behind the story. Jesus knew that when she dropped in those two small copper coins, that she was given everything that she had. She was given it all. It was the ultimate sacrifice. So when she went to the temple, she could do this and she could do this with integrity. C.S. Lewis once said that, I am afraid. The only safe rule in life is to give more than we can spare. So let me kind of, as I start moving to our clothes here, I want to ask just, I want to answer just a couple of, of quick questions that I know may be stirring in your mind, and, and uh, I hear them a lot. First question is what is the standard for generosity? Now, the fact that the question is asked might indicate that there's a problem. But it's a fair question. So what is the standard for generosity? How does, how does this idea of generosity connect with the concept of tithing? Now, this is not a message on tithing, but let's just address this for just a moment in a, in a very, very simple way. You see, in my book, and, and there are others out in the Christian world who would disagree with me, and I'm going to be up front with you. They're going to disagree with what I'm about to say right now. But I would tell you, they are wrong. There are some in the Christian world that say the standard is generosity, which may or may not include this concept of tithing. And you know, a tithe is, is 10% of all that we have. So here's how I approach this, this idea of tithing. 10% is good, but if we really want to use an Old Testament standard, if you look at all the giving that the average Israelite did throughout the course of a year, it probably equaled to 23%. So the new leadership statement at Pathway Church is going to be, you can be a leader if you give at least 25% or more. Any volunteers? No, no, it's because in, in the Old Testament there was, there was that you bring the tithe, the first fruit of everything, and then there was other things that you gave along the course of the year, these things that are considered generosity, these things that, that are helping the poor and, and sacrifices and, and all these, these other things. So 10% is, is really kind of a mute point, and I understand that in the New Testament this concept of, of tithing as 10% doesn't appear all that often, but here, just think about this for a second. You know, Jesus never once, to my knowledge, downgraded the tithe. Now, he corrected the Pharisees on their understanding of the tithe and saying, you, you tithe 10% of your mint and cumin and dill. I don't get that, but that's what they did. And he never once said, no, 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 it shouldn't be 10. It, should, it could be five because we're going to live in a generous age. And he didn't say, no, it's got to be 15 because of we're changing the law or anything. No, that's not it. Jesus never criticized them given their 10. Never once in the, New, in the New Testament can I find where this idea of a tithe is removed. In fact, if you want to step into this whole uh, thought of the New Testament and Jesus' teaching, let me ask just one simple question. When did Jesus ever make it easier to be a Christian? 
Remember when we talked last week, we said that, uh, um, you know, in the Old Testament, it was an eye for an eye. But if you get angry with your brother, that's sin. Remember how we, Jesus raised the standard? When you look at this idea of, of looking on a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery, that he raised the standard there. I mean, when you look through the whole New Testament, if Jesus does anything at all, he raises the standard, not lower it. So why would Jesus raise the standard on everything and then all of a sudden say, oh yeah, well, it comes to money, don't worry about it. Just do what you want, just be generous. Is that the standard? Well, you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. The real issue is not a number. The real issue is not a number. The real issue is what will your heart allow you to give sacrificially? That's the real issue. But see, here's what God in His wisdom did for us in the New Testament. When it's so hard to do things, He gave us the Holy Spirit who gives us the power and the wisdom to do these things. Yes, it is hard some months to write out a, a check to give to the poor when you know yourself that, that things are a little tight, you're struggling a little bit. God sees your struggle. He understands all of those things. But does the Holy Spirit give you the strength to do something else? So earlier I said that the definition that um, I want to give to generosity is what I call principled, open-handed living. What does that mean? Principled, open-handed living is this, is that, that, that we are willing to give what we have with an open hand because the principle of our life is Jesus. And the principle behind Jesus is, I will supply you your every need. Every need. Every need. Jesus will supply it. And if you can live by that principle and understand that, then you can live open-handed. Most of us know who John Wesley was. John Wesley was used by God as a great revivalist in the 18th century. He, uh, he actually was the, the founder of, of the Methodist Church. We know John Wesley is a great preacher, a great organizer. We remember him for his contributions to the church's thinking on holiness and sanctification. But one of the things that we often don't know about John Wesley is that he became one of the richest men in England in his age. In a time when a single man could live comfortably on 30 pounds, that's English currency, his annual income reached 1,400 pounds. He made 50 times as much in a year as the average Englishman made. One of the wealthiest men in England in his time. In later life, Wesley uh, grew discouraged with Methodism because uh, he had seen this movement start with him and his brother, two young men at Oxford. Starting this movement that grew to be a million people in his lifetime. I mean, the Wesleyan movement, if you go back and look at history, had such power and influence. It changed, it changed laws of that day. It, it, it helped to abolish slavery and to, to help people with their drinking. It just, they did so many things. But Wesley felt like as his life grew, as he grew older, he felt like there was spiritual power lost in this movement. They no longer hungered and thirsted after righteousness. They, they were not as eager to attend 5 a.m. preaching services. I might have been there with them as well. They were not as ready to, to visit the sick and the needy. And he was convinced that this decline in the way they loved their Lord and their neighbors was grieving the Holy Spirit. In fact, he feared that the Holy Spirit had even left them and that the labors of his life had been lost. 
Besides thinking that the Holy Spirit had abandoned the Methodists, Wesley also believed he knew the cause. In fact, he believed a particular sin was what caused them to lose their first love and had separated them from God. He even told Methodists in Dublin when he was preaching in Ireland this. These were the words he told these people. He says, Ye are the men, some of the chief men, who continually grieve the Holy Spirit of God and in a great measure stop His gracious influence from descending on our assemblies. What had these men done to deserve such a rebuke? What was the crime of the Methodists in London and Manchester and Bristol that Wesley found lacking? What was, what was the sin that had convinced them that God had abandoned them and which he thought was hindering revival? What was the sin? They loved money more than God. And he noticed that as godliness declined and pride increased, so did the financial charity to the poor and the church. In 1731, Wesley began to record his expenses and his income. And so what he would do is he record his income. It was 30 pounds in one year, and his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he gave two pounds to the poor. The next year, his income went up to 60 pounds. He lived on 28, and he gave 32 away. Then the next year, his, his, his earnings went up to 90 pounds. He lived on 28, and he gave away 62 and then he earned 120 pounds. He lived on 28, and he gave away 92. You see what he did? He said, I am choosing not to increase my style of living so that my money can make a difference in the lives of people, so that my money can help people know who Jesus is. He practiced this principled, open-handed giving. Did you know today, the church in America... Did you know that the average Christian, average Christian, only gives about 2.8% of their income to the church and to charitable causes? Now, if you want to feel good, that's better than the average American who gives one point something percent. So the average Christian, person who calls himself a Christian only gives that much. Could it be that the chokehold on our lives spiritually is not anger and lust and pride and envy and slothfulness. Maybe the chokehold on our spiritual lives, maybe the thing that's keeping us putting the accelerator down on how we live for Jesus is the fact that we are not being generous with our lives. What would happen in this community if all of a sudden all of us just got together and we just started saying, take people, and we just started throwing money around the community. What would happen? What would happen if we cared for the poor in a way no other, no other church or community agency does? What happened if we cared for the causes of Christ the way Jesus cared for them? Something would take place in here. Revival would break out. The Holy Spirit would be pleased. And we would soar to the heavens because of what Jesus is doing through us. That's the kind of life that he wants. And the great news is you can choose it. You can choose it. That life can be yours today. So right now, I'm, I want to pray for you, and then after we pray, we're going to take communion. But I want to pray that God would do this in your life. Would you pray with me, Father, this morning? I just pray that you would help us to unleash heaven with a generous heart, with open hands, that we might live for you and give to you and give to others as we have need. Lord, we, don't have, we can't give to everybody. We can't give to every cause. But Lord, I know that you're placing stuff right in front of us 
And we just need to say yes and follow you in obedience to do what's before us. Lord, I know you're working in the hearts of, of our friends here this morning. Lord, I know that you're doing something great in them and, and that you're going to make that happen, Lord. I just, I just believe it. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, I think it's appropriate this morning that we end with communion. Because remember, Jesus gave his life. That's why we do communion. So this morning as we celebrate, we're going to do so because God, a generous God, gave to us who were spiritual in spiritual poverty. And He gave to us so that we might be rich. So this morning as we, uh, as we come to receive the communion elements, many of you who have done this many times, you, you know the drill. You know it better than I do. But we're going to ask in a moment for you to stand up. And if you're in these middle aisles, we're going to go row by row. You're going to come to the middle. You're going to walk in front of these two tables. And you're going to go down those, those aisles right on the, the outside and return to your seats. So we can do this in an orderly fashion. And then those who are on the outside, you're going to, you're going to step out to your left. You're going to step out to the middle aisle right next to you. You're going to come to these far tables, receive your elements. And you're going to return down at the outside aisles. And, and we're going to take our communion together. We're going to ask you to hold on to them so that together we can receive these communion elements. So ushers or those who are serving us today, come forward. Go to your tables. And if while we're taking communion or any time during this next moment you feel you need to pray, we have altars. The altar on, on my left, your right, is designed. If you just want to pray on your own to come and pray, the altar on my right, your left, is designed. If you would like to just pray with somebody, someone will come meet you there. Folks, let's stand together. Let's come receive these elements. And then we'll take communion together.
It was nighttime when Jesus was teaching his disciples this, this very important thing that we do now. He was reminding them of what he was going to do for them, the sacrifice he was going to make. He said, this body, this body is going to be sacrificed for you. And every time you do this thing that I'm now teaching you, you're going to remember of the generosity I've given for all of mankind. Disciples remembered, they wrote it down, and so we get to do it today. Would you take the bread and eat? His body wasn't enough. The Bible told us in the Old Testament that blood needed to cover sin. And so Jesus not only broke his body, but in the process of doing so, he covered our sin with his blood. And when he was teaching his disciples that night, that's what he reminded them of. And so what they did, now almost 2,000 years later, we do as well. Let's take and drink. Thank you, Father, for blessing us with your son, Jesus, and all that he so generously gave. Jesus' name. We're going to close our service out with just a final song. Again, um, I know Pastor Randy is enjoying a little bit of time away. He'll be back next week, of course. But thanks so much to, to you guys for joining us. Let's stand together and sing this final song together. out this chorus of living hope uh, together. Let's just declare um, just how triumphant the Lord has been in our lives today.
that you're here with us today at Pathway Church. Just remember when you're leaving those doors that we have been blessed by the Lord so that we can go be a blessing to others. So let's just do that this week. You guys have a great week.